Hello, I'm Colin Green, and you are listening to Spike Pit. I am so happy to hear you talking about using what you already know. I think, you know, one of the things about gaming and it being so broad and and so, you know, variable is that it can suit both people who want to just use what they already know and focus on the gaming and people who want to use the new and shiny technology and game. So it isn't judgmental. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other, but I absolutely don't think you have to use the newest, shiniest technology to run a really good game. It's been my experience that I've been in games with zero technology that blew my mind, and I've been in games with slick, shiny technology that left me a bit ho-hum. So I congratulate you on using what you know and not taking the bait for, hey, there's something new and shiny, go grab it. Um, I'd really appreciated you and Barney really talking about simplifying our online gaming. I really, really felt that was, that sort of spoke to me really. Um, let me tell you why. At the weekend I ran um, an online convention game for Garantha Games 2020 uh, for RuneQuest and I decided very early on the only way I was going to have the confidence and courage to do that was to essentially go voice only, real dice, sheets in hand and uh, completely shun sort of Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, and all of the other VTTs. And the the day before, the biggest anxiety I had about it was, oh my God, you know, people are going to think I am just so Neanderthal. Um, But in actual fact, it it was great. And I had a really positive game. And I think everybody was kind of fine with it. And, you know, I just wanted to express that I'd had that anxiety. While I've used Fantasy Grounds especially, and Roll20 a bit, I always found it quite a heavy time sink in terms of prep, you know, that kind of going on and fiddling about and organising things actually was quite a time sink. And now eventually I got to the point where I did my prep while sitting at the computer and I kind of didn't do a lot of repetition. But nonetheless, I always felt like it's up there and sort of digitally and yet not here in my hands. And there's always been that tension between, you know, where my notes are and how accessible they are. And of course, the constant fear, as Barney points out, that things will go down. And in the end, kind of coming back to my little pencil and notebook, a set of dice and maybe a printed carrot sheet was just such a relief to me. And recently, that's how I've been running my games um, in my dungeon fantasy game. And of course, now with RuneQuest. So where am I going other than saying thank you? I think what I'm trying to say is if there are people out there who are intimidated by these things, I think that what Barney was talking about and and what you've been talking about is absolutely key. That actually you you should go from where you're comfortable, that actually starting with pretty low-tech, you know, minimalist kind of options is a really great place to start. And you could obviously apply that to your game choice, um, you know, rules choice, what you're going to do in terms of material and all of that. You know, I always say start with a really simple dungeon game. I always say start with a really simple set of rules you're comfortable with. You know, and and with that, I would say if you're going online, just start with sort of a voice, some kind of voice or video communication tool and, and then just play as you normally would as best you can because I found that to be really liberating. These calls from Liren and Che sum up my approach really. I I build on what I know, always keeping in mind that I want things to be as simple as they can be, and that's how I get the confidence to run games. I use a system I'm familiar with, and if I'm not familiar with it, 
and it's a new system, I go for something really light, often a, a one-page offering like tunnel goons or a simple set of rules, a favourite being maze rats or Ray Otis's sorcerers and cell swords. Hey, Colin, Jason here. I don't think I ever called you for your interview with Joe. Great interview. Good job. I, too, really love designer notes, and I agree with you. Just put out a PDF of them. You don't have to add page, add page count. Just put out a PDF somewhere and let us go read it, Even like on the publisher website or whatever. Um, I haven't been fortunate enough to be in some playtests of Reaver. I really like it. I really think it captures sword and sorcery and look forward to that being published. I, I really like all Raven God's stuff. I think Joe does a great job. On the subject of lightweight backpacking, I think you can take it too far. We had a guy in our, now this was in the army, but we had a guy that had, you know, took pages out of his ranger's handbook to save space. Anybody who's in the army will know what a ranger handbook is, or at least anybody in the infantry. And, um, yeah, that was kind of extreme. He caught a lot of flack for that, but Hey Colin, Spencer here. Just wanted to say I really enjoyed that Joe Salvador interview. Found it particularly interesting what you said about wargaming rules and how they often feature design notes. It's something I'd certainly like to see more of in RPGs. I certainly appreciate them when I see them in the work of people like Ben Melton. The thinking I had behind picking up the BX Options Class Builder book because I felt it might help me see uh, under the hood of BX, as it were, get my head around the quirky things about the different classes and why they level up at different rates and why some are capped and all that sort of stuff, because I really appreciate knowing why things are the way they are. Interesting to hear that Joe did the uh, Fane of the Cold Goddess. It's a really neat uh, adventure setup. I might have to personally ask him questions about it. I was wondering, though, since he did work on Ash, how much he was inspired by the uh, tests of and feats of attribute from Ash uh, to really simplify the feat mechanic in Eldritch Tales. I really enjoyed it when we played. It's a very neat tack-on to an already simplified system that makes things run smoothly. And I agree when Joe ran the game, um, we really didn't roll a lot of die, only when it was important or pertinent. He let us see the obvious, and if we needed to get more information, uh, then we'd roll. Great interview. I guess we like talking about design or reading about design. At least that's the impression I get from the feedback. Jason, Carl, and Spencer all enjoyed the interview with Joe. I had a lot of fun doing it. I feel like I'm not the best interviewer in the world. It's more of just a chat and then a whole lot of editing to get it into some sort of shape. But I don't mind. As long as there's an audience for it, I think it's worth doing these things. Really, I need a bit more practice, so perhaps I should consider getting some more designers on the show. The attribute feats. I'd not made the connection with Ash. In fact, there may not be a connection. I, I was aware that... Joe was focusing on on white box and the white box rule variants and hacks etc are something that I'm I'm still looking into I've still got to make some time to check out Hero's Journey but 
for me in Eldritch Tales, the attribute feat was definitely one of those standout mechanisms. And of course, you could carry that into all sorts of your your old school or typical old school play. I'm not familiar with the product that Cody mentioned, but I am familiar with another product that is OSR for American Revolution, and that's the Times That Fry Men's Souls. Being a weird history campaign during the American Revolution for use with old-school fantasy role-playing games, featuring 80 map hexes, 185 encounters with war, spies, crime, nature, and oddities, including 10 scenarios of the supernatural and tables of useful information. Now, this is actually a pretty big book. It's a 139-page book. The 10 scenarios are all two-page, basically. They're more than adventure seats because they're two pages each, but they're not fully fleshed out. And then pages 116 to 131 are all separate random tables for everything from name generators to weird random weirdness, random encounters, weird items, sensitive political items, things like that. And the reason I'm pushing this is because it's a toolkit. And I would like to see more toolkits as opposed to complete rule sets, to be honest. I guess I have to leave you a message in response to Cody's message about cannons and fodder. But uh, there is a group that's been working, and their their origin is as a miniatures company. Um, they run miniatures games, and they have some miniatures games set in the colonial period, the colonial uh, North America. And they do have something called Forts and Frontiers that they're trying to develop. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a um, free RPG day offering, which I ran at my FLGS, and it went pretty well. Um, they definitely needed a lot of work to it, and they did a Kickstarter, but it stalled somewhat, so they have a living document that's a bunch of Google Docs, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to see it finalized because it has a lot of neat ideas and concepts, but uh, hey, that's another way to use 5e in a non-canonical fantasy way. Now, if we're talking American War of Independence and we're plugging games, I would like to plug Academy Games, their 1775. I play it on the 4th of July whenever I can and it's an awesome game. Lovely board, lovely components. It's sort of a dudes on on the map area control game the second plug is worthington games and it's a kind of hex and chip war game called hold the line i love that also having said that i am interested in this period for playing some rpgs and jason and carl's picks there sound pretty intriguing i I don't know how easy they are to get hold of, but it's something perhaps when I've got a minute, I'll have a look into. Also, Jason makes a good point about toolkits, and he'll get no argument from me. I, I love the kind of toolkit that allows you to take a, a system perhaps that you've already got and just do more with it without having to get a whole new system more of that please designers and publishers if you're listening just been listening to you sliding in a quickie it certainly brought a smile to my face now before i move on to the next calling i've got some really good news josh beckelheimer has reached out to me 
He's decided that he, he's going to persevere listening. In fact, he's going back and catching up on some of the earlier episodes that he missed the first time around. But even better than that, I'd like to welcome him aboard as the latest member of the pit crew. I'm sure a lot of folks will be relieved at this news and nobody more so than myself. Welcome aboard, Josh, um, and I hope you enjoy the shows going forwards and find some value there in the back catalogue. Clue finding is an interesting thing, Colin. I um, Every time I run a game, I kind of get a sense of the players and try to figure out what would make it the most exciting. Um, I'm thinking, like in four hours to Reno, I think uh, they're probably... I did have people roll all the time. I just had people look in the right places, which I thought was a, a cool thing. Or, you know, if you ask the right questions or look in the right places, um, you find what's your the clue. Um, I like the idea that uh, a caller said that you just get the clues, much like the gumshoe system, Trailer Cthulhu, and what do you do with them? That is like a police procedural or investigative uh, television show. Or, and I think... I. I didn't do this consciously. I just kind of like went with it in the case of the Invictus. And I guess you'll let me know how it worked or not. There were clues that you could find or you didn't have to because the events happened as they would happen. But the clues that you found could help you to survive the events. Whether you found the clues or not, they were not like signposts, but they were tools that you could learn about and find to understand, unravel the mystery, and help the characters ultimately survive. And I feel that's kind of how I'm doing part two, is the clues are there, you ask the right questions, you find them or not, but the events can still happen if you go to the right place or follow the right idea. As opposed to, I hope, following the carrot. You want to go to where you want to go because you've interacted with people and you've obtained information through the right settings but again you can go where you want to go or not and it's not dependent on a signpost to clue i think more and more i'm tending towards a methodology of leaving clues lying around fairly easy to find mm. but then the knack is unraveling it all or putting it together to make some sense the other way the other method that I use, and I think this is kind of along the lines of what Carl's talking about, is this. Finding stuff, and then, depending on how successful you are, is how useful that becomes to you. So, it, it's degrees of discovery. So, maybe you find a clue... You do a really good job of investigating it and then it becomes more useful. Uh, he is talking about some other stuff, but I'm just racking my brains uh, as to how you can explain his technique simply. And really the answer is, I feel like you've got to play the game. He's, he's done a good explanation there and, and there's not much more I can add. But 
I'm finding myself more or less in a game of Cthulhu weekly now. Uh, I've got to say, I've been enjoying it and got a game coming up with Andy Goodman on Monday. Uh, that'll be the 26th of October and I'm looking forward to that greatly. Jason's got a bit more to add on investigation and he's going to throw in a little bit of that OD&D lore. Um, I know that's something that he's currently really into. So let's let him have his say. I forgot to say about investigation games. I think you're right that these days, well, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm sure somebody out there is still doing the thing where they're making people roll and not giving them clues if they, they miss their perception check or miss their spot hidden or whatever. You know, anybody doing that's just a bad DM or an inexperienced DM at least, right? Yeah, I, I think it's much more rare than the rumors make it out to be. I, I've certainly never been in a game that's been that bad. Although I have been in games where, you know, we've had to do a whole lot of spot hiddens, which, to be honest, gets a little bit annoying when you describe doing something, and it should just be given to you. I mean, that kind of falls back to saving throws, right? So back originally, from what I understand, saving throws were last-ditch, you know, give me to the player, give them a chance to survive. The um, re reason I bring that up is because, you, you know, back in OD&D, &D, the original books, you didn't even have a thief, which is fine because you could describe whatever, and if you describe you know enough of a search that you would find the trap the dm could just say hey you found the trap and then if you don't describe say you don't check that drawer for traps before you open it that's when you get that save versus poison to see if you you know you survive the needle that was there but if you say hey i'm searching the, for traps ahead of time then you would have found the needle and it wouldn't be a problem at all And that, as they say, is a wrap. Thanks to everybody who called in, making this Into the Pit episode possible. Massive thanks to the pit crew, my patrons over on Spike Pit Patreon. And last but not least, a big thanks goes out to you, the listener, for taking a bit of time out of your day to listen to old Spike Pit. Take care, and I'll catch you later.